I got a watch last year that pairs with my phone, and it's actually saved me quite a bit of time. Uh, and in a way that I did not anticipate, it, it has a feature on my phone where I can um, find my, my, or it has a feature on my watch where it can help me find my phone. And my wife said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, so one, one day I walked back into my office one afternoon after being in a meeting somewhere, and, and there was something I wanted to check on my phone, and first thing I did is check my hands to make sure it wasn't there, and it wasn't. Check my pockets, it wasn't there. I thought, oh, man, no, I didn't touch it in the room, probably just left it here. So I looked around my office, couldn't find it, and I thought, ah, my phone. So I opened it up, pinged my phone, and it there it was to my right. So I was looking over there. What's it doing there? No, nope, couldn't see it. So I pinged again. It was to my right. After one and a half circles, I realized, oh, I didn't check my back pocket, my right back pocket, and I found my phone. <laughs> my first thought was I was so glad there wasn't security cameras in my office because uh, that would have gone viral with the caption, watch the dog chase his tail. <laughs> Went home and told my wife, you know what she said to me? She said, are you minimizing? Are you sure it was only one and a half times, one and a half circles? <laughs> Ever find yourself going in circles? It's way more of like life than we like to admit, isn't it? We find all kinds of ways to justify, to deny, to put a positive spin on it. Oh, I, have, I am stopped. I am stalled. I'm still moving. Folks, a circle is not moving forward. Just because you're moving, doing, doesn't mean you're advancing. Now, I'm not saying there are never times to circle back and try again. It's called rehearsal. Been in music, done team sports, repeating over and over again to habitualize a positive behavior, right? But going in circles is most often not the normal pattern of life. You've got you to admit it. First of all, recognize it, admit it. Stop it, and, well, let's turn to Joshua chapter 3. Forty years before this time, God has his people, has taken his people out of slavery in Egypt toward the land of his promise. They come to the Jordan River, send in some spies, get scared, turn around, and spend 40 years, an entire generation, going in circles in the desert. And that's what happens when we don't go forward God's way. The desert. That place of dry and boring, which makes us do all kinds of things to make it feel, make us feel something, do something that's exciting. It's that place where life is barren. No matter which, how much we spend to make it look lush, which is what we do, right? For those of us who are of a certain generation, we might remember Larry Norman, who has a song, nothing ever changes, everything remains the same. We are what we are till the day that we die. Now, sometimes God takes us into a desert for positive reasons, but most deserts we're in are there because we have stopped and we've gone in a circle. But God, the God of grace and mercy, does not stop calling us back, and in His grace and mercy... Well, the next generation of his people are given another chance. Now, you've got to notice as we come to Joshua, God doesn't change his plan. God doesn't say, well, you know what? You didn't want to do it my way, so we'll try it your way. God doesn't change his plan. He doesn't bless their plan. He gives them another chance to follow his plan, to receive his abundant grace and gracious life for them. And so we come to Joshua 3 under a new leader, Joshua, they find themselves once again at the edge of the Jordan River. They've committed themselves to going God's way, to following Joshua as he leads them in God's way. Verse 1, Joshua 3. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. Now, something I find fascinating is I, I read that statement in, in light of the flow of the book to this point. It's not what 
has been said and done. It's what has not been said and not done. What's missing in the story to this point? Can you think of anything that's missing? Chapter 1, verse 2, the leading command God gives to Moses, or to Joshua, when he comes on the scene, is, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready. Prepare to cross the Jordan into the land I'm about to give them. Two geographical features that are mentioned. The Jordan into the land. And so Joshua sends officers to go around telling people they have three days to pack up and be ready to cross the river. But from that point on, the focus is all about the land on the other side of the river. What Joshua has done is he sends spies to look over Jericho, perhaps to try to figure out if the people, what, what their mood is, are they ready? He discovers they're afraid. If there's any vulnerabilities. But hey, what good is intel on the land on the other side if they can't get to the other side? Should Joshua not instead, or at least also, have put together a task force to strategize how they could get two million people across the Jordan River? What good is it to be ready to cross if you have no plan to get across? What we have seen so far to this point is that the people on the other land are on the other side are totally afraid. And they know Israel will win. They know Israel's God will win. They know they've got, they're on borrowed time and this land is not really their land. And that's all fine and good. But if I had heard that report from the spies, I think I might have been tempted to say, well, that's really great, Joshua. But open your eyes, you dreamer. Our problem is not whether the people on the other side are afraid. It's what's right in front of us right now that we are afraid of. The immediate barrier, Joshua, is not the gateway city in the land. It's the Jordan River between us and the land. And Joshua, I know this one might have been said because some people have this memorized. When all else fails... Joshua, don't you realize the timing of this thing sucks? Everybody always, if they can't challenge anything else, oh, the timing is no good. And the timing really does suck. This is the worst time of the year to cross the river because later in chapter, in verse 15 of chapter 3, we realize now the Jordan River is at flood stage, all during harvest, which is the time they're in. Now, let's get our heads around what flood stage mean. means. I've I've, I've sort of just done a rough hand-drawn cross-section visual. It's, it's not to scale, but, but the, the... Okay, it's there. I'll help you out. The Jordan River varies in width, or the, the Jordan Valley varies in width from about half a kilometer to about 22 kilometers wide. Now, you've got to know that at this point, they're in one of the widest places because you've got two million people standing there in the Jordan Valley. Um, the river channel itself is ordinarily not that wide or deep, about 30 to 90 feet wide. And at the widest places, it's only about three feet deep. But in that valley is also a floodplain, which, is about, which varies from about 200 meters to about two and a half kilometers. In the spring flood season, when the Jordan carries the runoff, of about 18,300 kilometers or square kilometers of territory from the winter rains, the floodplain is underwater up to about two and a half meters deep. And at the narrower places, the river is flowing really, really swiftly. And what's under all that water? Mud. A couple of strong young spies may be able to find a way across, but two million people? <laughs> it's not happening. And Joshua, if you can't tell us how we're going across, at least tell us where you want us to cross so we can figure out a way, right? And Joshua says, well, I'm not sure yet. 
Now, we don't know all of the conversations that happened in those days, but we can pretty sure that one happened by what is said a little bit later. Joshua wasn't sure where they'll cross. So, the three days that the spies are in Jericho, two million people, pack up from Shittim, 12 kilometers away from the Jordan, and they take a 12-kilometer hike, leave the wilderness behind them, leave the experiences of Shittim behind them, some of them which were pretty raunchy, check out Numbers chapter 25, and they go about 12 kilometers and set up a new camp, so they move from Shittim right to the edge on the, in the Jordan Valley, on the edge of the floodplain, the edge of the river, in clear view of the barrier in front of them. And for three more days, they hear the roar. They see the rush of the Jordan at flood stage. Crossing the Jordan is no longer a theoretical idea. It's no longer a conceptual ideal. It's right there, right now. Do you think in those three days, it was like, okay, just just visualizing this, trying to get used to it, get the feel of it. Yeah, becoming more and more okay with it. Can't be that bad. I think not. The closer you get, the more it's like, how crazy is this? The best of them would have said, you know, I guess I'm supposed to have faith, but, but I don't know. This isn't getting any lower. Everyone but Joshua. Joshua's not worrying. And seemingly, Joshua's not even spending time strategizing as he thinks about crossing the Jordan. Why? Because there's a key line in God's promise to Joshua in chapter 1 that Joshua has kept reflecting on. And perhaps God reminds him of as he spends his base camp time with God every morning in this three-day period reflecting on the law of God and the way of God into which he's supposed to lead these people. Something that he's actually beginning to live into so strongly in his mind that he's getting downright excited. Over and over he hears God's voice to him ringing in his ears from chapter 1, verse 5, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Do you know what's making Joshua smile as he sees the Jordan? What does he see in his mind? He sees how God first showed the people that he had been with Moses, their leader, Joshua had been there 40 years ago as a young man, and he remembers it. He and Caleb are the only people in this group who were there and saw it. It was as they came with the armies of Egypt behind them to another body of water, the Red Sea. None of these people had seen it, but they'd heard about it. But Joshua was there. And if that's how God affirmed Moses' leadership... As we left Egypt, it just makes sense that that's exactly what God will do as we enter the land. He knew it was going to be flood stage when he put us here. And so Joshua does have his strategy. And after three days, the people discover the strategy God has given Joshua. Verse 2, after three days. The officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go. Since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits, which is about one kilometer, between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Who will lead them through? Well, well, Joshua, right? Joshua, if you want to be the leader, you've got to go first. Nope, not Joshua. Well, okay then, the army goes first. Oh yeah, that makes sense. We had to be prepared for the enemy army on the other side, so we've got to get, send the troops through first, right? Nope. Who goes first? (laughs) 
the priests go first, carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. The main character in chapters 3 and 4 referred to, well, directly at least nine times in this chapter and a few more times in, in the next chapter, is the ark. The ark is the hero of this story. The ark of the covenant of the Lord your God. A box of gold that God told them to make at Mount Sinai where he met them. The ark, which has three things inside of it. Number one, the tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written. The ark has the word of God, the law of God. The ark inside has a jar of manna, which represents the provision of God every single day for these people in their desert experience. It has the rod of Aaron, which represents the, pro the, the, the protection and authoritative leadership of the Lord their God. The ark with the two cherubs on top of it with wings up, pointing together, symbolizing that meeting of Moses in the presence of God, the provision of God, the law of God, the protection of God, and the presence of God with them. The ark, the symbol of everything that God had done and will do for them, who he wanted to be in them and with them and through them, a symbol of what they needed to allow him to be for them in this challenge. A number of years ago during the summer months when the weather was good and the sun came up early in northern BC, several times a week I would jog early in the morning with um, two friends that I had met during this outdoor basic training boot camp that we did together in the months of June with a trainer. And, and we'd most often jog in a park outside the city we were in uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a designated area called Forests for the World. It was a natural forest area with trails and some little lakes and benches and picnic tables all over the place, and it was awesome. Beautiful run in nature. And, and one, one of these friends was a, a lawyer friend that I had met who was about 15 to 20 years younger than me. Uh, the other one was a young woman in her 20s who was a marathoner, and she just looked for any excuse to run together with somebody. And So I'm the old guy in the group, and... I'm a pastor, which was quite unique to them, and they would often comment on it. We had led to some great discussions, and my lawyer friend was particularly intrigued that a pastor and a lawyer could be friends. He made all kinds of jokes about pastors and lawyers being friends. One day, we're jogging along together, but as usual, I'm, you know, half a step behind, uh, trying to keep up, and we, we rounded a bit of a switchback corner, and there, boom, right in front of us, 30 feet, a moose, a big moose in the middle of the trail. We surprised him as, he, as much as he surprised us and immediately lowered his head and started pawing the ground. <laughs> because they were half a step ahead of me, they saw it half a step sooner and they stopped half a step before me and they jumped behind me. Both of them. <laughs> Literally jumped behind me, grabbed me and looked over my shoulder. <laughs> After it was all over and, and uh, we turned around, ran the other way. Uh, After it was all over, we're back in the parking lot. I said, so what's with that? Both of you, jump behind the old man. I said, oh, I know. Don't have to outrun the moose. Just have to run, outrun the old man. And, uh, and, and the lawyer said, no, no, no. We jump behind the pastor. God's not going to let anything happen to the pastor. <laughs> you know, I've, I, I've, I've wondered every once in a while as I thought about that story, do we intuitively know that if there's a God, we do have to get behind his leadership? Do we? And in desperate situations, we instinctively do things that, that maybe give a nod to the idea of letting God take the lead. What's Joshua's strategy? It's rather simple. Let God lead. That's it. Folks, the main reasons we go in circles is because we don't allow God to lead. We don't follow where God is leading. If we want to stop going in circles, we have to get over ourselves. We have to get over our desires, our needs, 
Our expectations, our fears, our worries, our issues, our disappointments, and just let God lead. I love that way. Since you have never been this way before. Which way? My way. You've done your way, but you haven't tried my way. And that's natural because you've never been this way before, but I have. This time, will you follow me? I will go before you. That's the ark. You know one of the lines that we, we use so often that should be a huge red flag in our minds? You know, I, just let me do this my way. I have to figure this out myself. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Some of us have said that and we are still going in circles and those circles have been ruts, have become ruts that we can't get out of. Folks, you don't have to do it your way. There's a better way. It's God's way. So are you letting God lead? Some of us are saying we're letting God lead and we're trying to let God lead. But what we're actually doing is a whole lot of backseat driving. Are you a backseat driver with God? You know an easy way to tell? It's by thinking through how we pray. How much of our praying is... Now, we frame it as asking God, but mostly we're sort of announcing to God where we want Him to take us, how and when we want Him to take us there, and what we need in order to get there, and oh yeah, who we want to be with, right? What, where, how, when, who? And when that's the main burden of our praying, we often come to the point of saying, well, it's not working for me. Folks, I'm not letting God lead as long as I'm backseat driving. Remember the first aspect of of prayer that Jesus taught us? We looked at it several weeks ago. Realignment. Your kingdom, your will, your way. Because most of our praying, in in the context of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus pointed it out, most of our praying is about self-righteousness and self-interest. Realignment and then release. Don't demand. Release those cares to God and let God, lead. Let's get back to Joshua 3. We're, we're going we're gonna to let God lead, said Joshua. And while we wait, rather than worrying, second-guessing, criticizing, let's take time to get ready to let God lead. And these people say, what do you mean, get ready? We are ready. We broke camp at Shittim. We came here to the edge of Jordan. We're ready. No, Joshua said, I mean really ready. I mean get your hearts ready and your heads ready. Joshua told the people, verse 5, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. That word consecrate, that sounds like an archaic, really religious sounding word. It, it basically means purify. It's the word from which we get holy. Set apart yourself for God and God alone, and God's way, consecrate yourself. If you, know what, if you want to know what the people who knew their story were thinking about when Joshua said this, go back to Exodus chapter nine this after, 19. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19 this afternoon. Just, just read through that, because this is not just a repeat of the Red Sea. This is a repeat of the experience the people had after the Red Sea just before God showed up in an amazing way on Mount Sinai. Verse 10 of chapter 19 of Exodus says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Here's what they had to do. Have them wash their clothes and be ready, same word, for the third day, Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai on the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, think with the distance he told them to stay before the, from the ark. 
and tell them, be careful you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. You don't handle a holy, all-powerful God lightly. You can't just blow them off. Can you see what Josh was telling them? Folks, God's giving us a redo. Once again, He's ready to show up powerfully. He's ready to erase the 40 years of consequences you've experienced for doing it your way. But you also have to be ready. You have to purify yourselves. Wash your clothes, which is a symbol of allowing God to wash your heart of all of the years of doing it your way. Getting ready for God means to lead means dealing with those things that have kept us from allowing God to lead. And we're, we're entering a period of time in the, in the year which in some uh, circles is called Lent, a time of getting ready for the time when God truly showed up at Easter. If you want to get together with some people and, and do some, some special Lent practices, get ready practices, uh, go to Version on, on your Bible app. Go to the Bible app, Version. They have a couple of plans there. You can do it yourself. You can get together with a couple of people and do it. You see, these people think they are more ready to get out of the wilderness. They, they, they think they are more than ready to get out of the wilderness. But what they need first is to get the wilderness out of them. James 4, verse 8 says, Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's the things in here Ways in which we have responded to God in less than full trust, in less than complete obedience. That we need to deal with to get past ourselves. Until we recognize and confess some of the ways in which we have not let God lead. Ways in which we have gone off God's path, fallen short of God's expectations. It's called sin. Hebrews 12.1 says... Yeah, first of all, the main point. You're not ready to get out of the circles of the wilderness until you're ready to get the wilderness out of you. Any wilderness attitudes, responses, behaviors still left in you, we all have them. Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, if you want to enter this journey, because we're surrounded such, by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily untangles Purify yourselves, and then let us run with endurance, perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on the one who has gone before you, the living God in Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I love uh, what Erwin Lutzer says in his book about Joshua. He says, this does not mean we have to be perfect before we attempt anything for God. It does mean that we have to bring out into the open everything that God shows us about ourselves. We must give it all to Him in honest repentance and submission. What is it that's still hanging on to you that's keeping you from following God's need? I don't have to tell you because it's coming to your mind right now and you're saying, well, it's nothing. It's not a big deal. It's in the past. No, it's not because it's still living in here, right? So for three days... Joshua says, get ready, wash your clothes, which, well, I, I don't want to spend too much time figuring that one out because they probably only had one set of clothes. Just saying. Two million people. This exercise probably included a bath, too, while they had their clothes off, not just to get physically clean, but to symbolically clean their hearts. So I was just figuring out as I was reading Exodus 19, Moses told two, two days. I, I know why he told two days. One day for the men, one day for the women. See? Got it. Got it. Anyway. Uh, let's move on. Verse 6, Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of, the, of all Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, go and stand in the river. I love this scene. They're cleansed, 
got the wilderness washed off their clothes and out of their hearts. The priests take up the ark, and Joshua says to the people, all right, today God's going to exalt me and show you that he has called me to lead you. Is that what he says? No. That's what God said to Joshua. You see, God says to Joshua, today you will be exalted in the people's eyes. Your leadership will be affirmed. And if Joshua had then said that to the people, he would have been accurate. But he wouldn't have been right. Do you get the difference? Sometimes when somebody says something and you say, mm, well, it's true. It may be true, but that doesn't mean it's right to repeat it. Do you get the difference? It would have been the mark of an insecure man, a proud man, drawing attention to himself, building his own ego. He would have been holding over the people what God said to them. Today we call that spiritual abuse. God says to Joshua, today I will exalt you. And Joshua says to the people, folks, today you're going to see God show up for you. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive up before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. The Lord of all the earth. They're going to see something amazing, but what they're, what they're supposed to see in this something amazing is that God, the God of all the earth, is again taking charge to claim one piece of that earth for himself and his mission to bring people to loving, submitting, and living in, in his love and undership, under his leadership and no longer going in circles. For three days, you've been seeing your problem, the bigness of your problem. Today, you'll see something amazing, but let me tell you what you're really supposed to see. You're supposed to see the living God among you. And what's it supposed to make you realize? That God will keep on ahead of you dealing with the issues in front of you and the people in the land. You see, I only see my problems as the big thing when I see myself as the central thing. That's what keeps us going in circles. Let the living God, the Lord of all the earth, be what you see ahead of you and let him lead you. In verse 12, he says, choose 12 men and just says, choose 12 men, one from each tribe. Why? Well, we're going to see that later. Um, and uh, verses uh, 13 to 17, he says, as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream, will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Remember that line? So when the people broke camp across the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went out ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage during all, har all harvest, yet as soon as the priests carried the Ark, reached the Jordan, and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap in a great distance away. 17 miles away, actually, at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down the sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground ground. What does the Joshua say the waters will do? It says they will stand up in a heap. It says it twice. Exactly what they had been told the waters did when they crossed the Red Sea. Folks, the only way to understand this is that, well, it actually happened. In order to get around the miracle aspect of this, it's been pointed out that in 1267, a landslide dammed the Jordan River, 
For several hours, something similar apparently happened in 1927 because the, the Jordan River is in what's called a rift valley where two of the Earth's major tectonic plates meet in a fault line, which makes this an earthquake zone, right? And that might have happened. I don't know. But just because it happened by natural means doesn't mean it's not a miracle because it had to be long enough for two million people to cross Hardly a couple hours. That's not a couple hours isn't going to do it. And the timing of it just then, boom. Hmm. It just so happened. Nice try. And what's under the water on a floodplain? Mud. They walked across on dry ground. Folks, this is a miracle. It happened. So let me just summarize what we've seen in this chapter for our life. Number one, how do you stop going in circles? You consecrate yourself. Set apart yourself for Him. Get, get rid of self, confessing the ways in which you have not followed Him fully. Focus your eyes on Him and Him alone, not people, not what they have or haven't done, not our problems or what God has or hasn't done. Proverbs 4 verse 25 says, don't look to the right or to the left. Focus your eyes on Him. And finally, you've got to take a step. You've got to take a step. You can't wait till God do some, does something to take a step. You've got to take a step. But there's one more important piece to this story regarding how to keep ourselves from going in circles. And, and it's how this crossing of the Jordan finishes in chapter 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together 12 men he'd appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. Said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the, of the tribes of the Israelites. Each of them, 12 of them, take up a big stone to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. And so the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed the Ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched, the men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses." Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant Law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests coming up out of Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what, they had, what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Okay, if we try to follow the story here step by step, we'll be a little bit frustrated because as we've already seen, if we've been following along closely, there, there are sort of these, 
these places where it says, okay, did this happen then? Like there's tectonic plates there or something. But, but there's, it, it's, it's sort of like in movies. Every once in a while, my wife and I are watching a movie and I'll say, okay, what's happening here? Is, is that something happened way earlier? She said, Mel, it's a flashback. Okay, that's what's happening here. There's a few flashbacks uh, uh, because if you read it just straight through, it almost seems like there's two sets of stones, right? There's probably only one set of stones. Uh, I don't want to explain why, but um, I just want to camp on one key verse for a while. Verse 7, these stones are to be a memorial for the people of Israel forever. He repeats it again in verse 21, 22. I don't know about you, but almost every time I've heard this chapter talked about, the only thing I can remember that the person said is something like this. You know, when God does something for you, you should journal it. We should create a little concrete piece to remember it and remind, to remember what God did. Now, it's not wrong to do that. It's a good thing to do. But is that what this passage teaches? It does not say, now, folks, every time God does something, you've got you to do what we did here and create a memorial stone. No, it says, these stones, these stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. The point of this whole chapter is that in the challenges of living in the new land, the distractions of going into this new land, they were to constantly remember their story, the story they were really living in, the story of a God who created us to live in and under Him, who calls us back to Him, who creates a people whom He can live among and who showed up in Jesus as the living God among us to take charge and to lead us into His promised land for us. It's not every time God shows up, take a stone. It's don't forget these stones. Oh, by the way, where is it they're supposed to put these stones? Or where, where did they put these stones? In a place that they called Gilgal. Do you know what Gilgal means? Circle. It's the place where they had to remember that God himself showed us, showed up, rescued them from just going in circles and showed them that they were in his circle of love, forgiveness, truth, and life. In our minds, we, I, th I think we tend to see these stones in a pile, don't we? I think these stones were actually arranged in a circle. Now, at the time, the story of how God would do that was not yet complete. But I wonder... I wonder if they had continued to do what Joshua commands them to do here today, to remember these stones and what they meant, how it was that God brought them out of Egypt into the land to get their eyes off themselves and what they deserved and needed. If they came back to remember these stones, I wonder if they'd done that, would they have recognized the next step in God's story when he came as the new Joshua, Jesus he did all of these things that God did with these memorial stones that the ark of God represented. He multiplied bread like the manna and indeed claimed to be the bread of life. Ding, ding, ding. We're back in the story. He showed up and had the right and authority to lead through the waters of death. He's Aaron's rod. He claimed to be the law of God. He was the presence of God with us, made real no longer just this mystical thing between the cherub. And he died to purify us from all sin and rose to usher all those who were in him into the promised land of life in and with God. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Forever, yes, forever. Because these stones help us to understand why it's important to do what we do today and getting together weekly for worship. What were these stones to do? They were to cause them to remember, to remind themselves of their real story and their God, God's story. That's why we need to gather together to worship, to remind ourselves, to, to better understand our story and how God and Jesus has broken through every barrier against us to draw us into the circle of life in Him. In Romans chapter 5 and 5 through 7, God gives this, or uh, Paul 
goes through this heavy, detailed, logical, theological articulation of what Jesus did in his death in God's eyes to bring us into God's circle. Legally justified before God, credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God to live above the pulls of my flesh, my own self-reference, self-centered, sin-controlled tendencies. He talks about how we're to process it when it doesn't look like we're winning the battle in, in the middle of Romans chapter 8, when life is against us, when all creation is groaning. And then in 8 verse 31, he says, so what shall we say in response to all of these things? All of what things? The truths about what Jesus did, and yet at the same time, the struggles, the toughness of living when life is against us. How do you put those two together? Paul says, what you will say in response to all this, if God's for me, who can be against me? And our response to that is like, yeah, but right now the way I feel, that's a hugely big if. If God is for me, that's my problem. And then Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us all things? Do you really think that God would allow not just allow, but send Jesus to die and not give you all of his resources with him to stand firm, to move forward and stop going in circles. You see, Joshua 4, the memorial stones, is sort of the Old Testament version of what Jesus calls us to do regularly in a communion service, to reflect on, to recall the story of how one day in this world there was another stone that was rolled away that opened a barrier from the desert of life apart from God, from the circles we go in, that opened the door to the kingdom of God and Jesus. Someone has said that the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. Or someone also has said that the trouble with most people who have been in churches a long time is the Jason Bourne syndrome. Jason Bourne, one of my favorite novel characters. Mo movies as usually aren't nearly as good. Matt, Matt Damon just isn't the Jason Bourne I have in my mind as I read Robert Ludlum's novels, right? Jason Bourne is a CIA assassin who has been recruited into a secret black ops program and surgically given a new identity, and, and then he's shot, and he loses all of his memory, and he becomes a man driven to find himself. What happened? That, that's sort of us. We were born with a lost memory of who God created us to be in the beginning, but as we recognize what God did in Jesus and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, that is who we are. But everything in the world around us, the dark powers of the immaterial world around us is blaring at us and begging us to lose that new memory and understand the significance of who the living God declares us we are in Jesus and when we forget, we let things like grudges and hurts and worries and fears and disappointments and defeats, I love the way Nikki Gumbel puts it, we let them live rent-free in our heads. They don't need to be there. We can kick them out. You see, we, when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we have three big aims. Number one, point ourselves back to the real story. That's why we spend so much time in God's Word. Point ourselves back to the real story. We need to know how, how we're called and empowered to live in the real story. And we hope that through our teaching, you can realize one step you can take this week to keep living in it. My promise to you in this, we will do our absolute best to do those three things. And my belief for you is this. If, if you come looking for those three things, you'll not be disappointed You'll stop feeling like you're just going in circles and grinding to a halt. It's, it's way bigger than a few simple principles to live by and pump me up soup for the soul stories to make me feel good. It's living each week, being able to sing, well, as the old song goes, this is my story, this is my song. And when we remember God's story, God's plan He has drawn us into, when we remember it well, 
and bring ourselves to call it to mind well in every situation, you know what's going to happen to us? We'll spend a whole lot more t- less time trying to discover some plan God has for me and just remember it and live in light of it. LaDonna and I have the alarms on our phone set to songs, two different songs. Now, it's kind of irrelevant what my song is because I've usually got it turned off and I'm halfway to the shower before the introduction's over. It's just who I am. But that's not how she gets up. She lays there on the pillow, waking up really slowly to a beautiful song by Audrey Assad, a song that reminds her every morning of the story she's really living in and what that means this day. My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. I find its echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What through my joys and comforts die, I know my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather round, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I lift my eyes. Yep, she does get up. The cloud grows thin. I see the blue above it. And day by day, this pathway smooths. Since first I learned to love it, the peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. For all things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. How can I keep from singing? And as LaDonna and I have sought to live in the story, there's one thing we've learned that's become a key indicator, a a sort of a barometer for us as to how well we're living in the story. It's changing one word, one word in our thinking, one simple word. We were reminded of that one change that changes everything as we read a book recently called The Power of Habits. And there's this powerful change in our thinking when we change one word. It helps us change our behavior. In the busyness, the mundaneness, the frustrations, the challenges of life, looking at everything I have to do today, what if we changed one word? Not, I have to do this, to, I get to do this. Because I live in the story of Jesus as a brother of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, I get to serve others today in His name. When I think I have to, what I dwell on is the difficult people I serve, the demands that people make of me, the dirt I'm always left with, the duties that are so boring, mundane, or impossible. But when I think I get to, because I have the Spirit of Jesus in me and I have the privilege of bringing just a little bit of Jesus' life and hope and love and healing and help in His name, how can I keep from singing? You see, we want a people... We want people to notice us, but God invites us to just keep living, loving in the mundaneness and toughness of life in such a way that people won't notice us, but will say, whoa, that person knows that the living God is with him. Are you working with the God who's working with you? Let's stand together.